Proctor here with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. The first land up, a meeting on functional programming, will take place on December 6, 2017 at Meat Factory in Prague. They want to create a space for discussion, change the paradigm for the community of programmers, and above all, to open the path for innovation. The event is supported by the organizers of the meetup groups Prague Lambda, F Sharping, and Elm Prague. For more information and to register, visit www.lambdup.io. That's L-A-M-B-D-U-P dot I-O. ClosureSync is a new conference by the creator of PurelyFunctional.tv, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans on February 15th and 16th of 2018, ClosureSync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to ClosureSync.com, that's ClosureSync.com, to sign up. Lambda Days 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. Tickets opened up as of November 1st and are currently available. For more information and to register, visit www.lambdadays.org. Bob 2018 is in Berlin on February 23rd of 2018. Bob is a developer conference on what's best in software development. Naturally, it has a strong focus on functional programming. For more information and to register, visit bobconf.de. That's B-O-B-K-O-N-F dot D-E. And Bob is immediately followed by Closure D on February 24th, also in Berlin. More information on Closure D can be found at closured.de. And cross-registration discounts for Bob and Closure D are available. Lambda Squared has been announced. Lambda Squared is a single-day, single-track functional programming conference held in Knoxville, Tennessee on March 30th. Early bird tickets are on sale for $50 until January 7th. For more information and to register, visit www.lambda-squared.com. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to show your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that's how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery. And a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening, and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week with us we have Radu Kopescu. Radu, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hi, Stephen. Happy to be here on your show. I'm Radu. I'm a software engineer, currently working at the CERN. I'm working on infrastructure software. My current project is called CERN VM File System, and it's actually one of the mission-critical systems of the CERN. It's, it's what we developed there to ship the software stacks of the different software, of the different physics experiments to the computational grid that is used by the CERN for running all the simulation and analysis. And I think maybe this project is interesting because even though it's C++ uh, system, it actually involves many of the key features of functional languages, things like immutability and referential transparency. So I think it could be interesting to go 
into a bit of detail about that. Yeah, and you got put on my radar through the CodeMess site and the conference that recently happened. And looking at that CERN VM file system project and your talk overview of how Erlang fits into that, whether it's Erlang inspired or actual Erlang, sounded interesting. So we'll get to that. But let's start with how did you first get introduced into software development? Well, it was during university, so I did a bit of programming when I was a, when I was a teenager in high school. But I actually started doing it on a regular basis at the end of university. So I'm not a computer scientist by trade, or I studied electrical engineering. But then I started becoming interested in the numerical simulation aspects of this field. So I did my master thesis writing some scientific computing code. And I think at that point, I started switching more and more towards software. And, and after university, I actually did a doctoral thesis in high-performance computing. So I was writing C++ libraries for supercomputers or big clusters for running also numerical simulations. And after that, I did various things and like worked in other projects. But I guess this is, uh, in a nutshell, what brought me to my current place. So if you're starting out in electrical engineering, did you take a couple of courses in the CS realm? I've known a couple of electrical engineers. One was a roommate in university where I went and a couple of others. And over here in the States at some of them, you have a little bit of a CS background and you cross maybe the first year or two with some of the same courses. Did that hold true for you? So you had some programming courses and some other computer science theory as part of your electrical engineering degree? Well, that's the thing that, so in the very first years, yeah, you'd have some common topics with people studying computer engineering or computer science. But I think this is very basic. And then the computer science or programming parts of your curricula are very applied or very, very focused on topics related to electrical engineering, so things like microcontrollers or embedded programming, things like that. At least at my polytechnic, you didn't really do the, you know, the computer science theory part. So for me, my interest in functional programming, for instance, started to develop towards the end of my PhD because I was writing a lot, a lot of C++ and in high-performance computing, it's, this is the main focus, like how can I make it faster? And in many cases, you end up with code that maybe isn't so elegantly designed, although it suits the purpose. And I was starting to think about these things and trying to see, ah, but is there something else, some other way of writing applications, uh, writing programs? And actually, the first thing I did was take the Coursera class about functional programming. And it was this, I think it's functional programming with Scala class of of Martin Odesky. And that really, really opened up my interest for the topic. It's a very nice class, actually. I recommend it. And the reason I was asking about the first year or two where you went to university was, if you're getting into some of this numerical analysis, I wasn't sure how much of a foundation other than your little high school programming playing that you said you did set that foundation for realizing or having the foundations to go and start putting together these programs to run your numerical analysis and simulations, or if that was something that you were picking up at that time, pretty much cold. 
I picked up most of my programming or computer science knowledge. I think I really picked it up as I went along. And it was also something that interests me. So I spent some extra time trying to improve or learn more than was just necessary for writing these numerical simulations. Or, But you really, it's a different field. I mean, also the programs that you write, let's say, they're not very complex from the point of view of structure because they are like simple loops or repetitive programs, like also from the concurrency or the parallelism point of view, you're, you're using multiple cores, you're using even multiple nodes, but let's say the control flow is quite simple. Then the complexity there is in the numerical algorithms that you are implementing. So after I finished my PhD, I wanted to do something else. I wanted to do more of the, let's say, complicated concurrent applications and less numerical scientific code. And so C++ was your main focus, you said, but were there any other languages that you started with to do this numerical analysis? I know sometimes people talk about picking up Python for some of these scientific calculations if it's not needed to be high performance, if you're just doing some analysis on these numbers versus needing to do the high performance stuff, which you talked about. Was C++ your main intro and became your main language because you started going down the route of high performance computing or were there other languages involved early on? I worked on code bases that I didn't start, and I wasn't the only developer. So I worked on two main libraries during my PhD. One was the Trilinos libraries. These were developed mainly at Sandia National Labs in the U.S., and they're basically building blocks for making any sort of numerical application. And then the second one was developed in my group, and these were libraries that were using the Trilinos uh, framework, but they were specifically for finite element simulations, which were the focus in my group. And basically, the choice wasn't mine. They were C++ projects. So we didn't go shopping for languages when I started. But I think in certain ways, I was lucky because had I started a bit earlier, maybe it would have been Fortran. And that's even more niche. That's really niche to the scientific computing code. But it's true that there are successful projects doing what we were doing fully in C++, but they were using Python, for instance, to you were describing your main file in Python, but behind the scenes it was using NumPy, SciPy, all these higher performance libraries to implement the complicated numerical work. So I think this project was called Phoenix or Dolphin, and they were doing quite interesting tricks to get performance. So for instance, they were actually compiling C modules on the fly and linking them at certain points to, to get maximum performance. Because as I was saying, the main file was Python and they were generating C code that was compiled and linked during runtime. But I think right now also you see it's more and more C++ for this numerical uh, intensive things like TensorFlow or for machine learning or for, I think it's the lingua franca of high performance numerical code so yeah and i know that c is one of those go-to when people think they need performance whether or not they actually need it or not but if they're focused on performance i know c is one of those go-to languages so when you're getting into this and you're starting to get ramped up on these projects what was the c like about how long ago was this because I know C++ kind of got a couple of major overhauls. More recently with C++ 17, there was C++ 14 that started to introduce 
a lot of features and functionality. Some people were saying this isn't your parents' C++ or this isn't the C++ you did in university. What did that look like when you were starting in on it? So in, at the beginning of my PhD, we were using, let's say, C++03 or so like the our parents' C++, as you put it. And at the end of it, finished about four years ago, C++11 had come out already. So it was with C++11 that there were major, major changes to the language and things were introduced such as anonymous functions, these lambdas. And I think many pure C++ programmers actually became interested in functional programming concepts that they get, got to experience through these new additions to the language. And I think this trend is continuing because also in, in newer revisions of the language, you have more and more, let's say, functional constructs or support for things like higher order functions. And so I think it's getting to a point where it's much more functional. But in the end, it's really multi-paradigm language. And I've got two reasons for setting that stage and asking you about that. One was you mentioned you took the Functional Programming in Scala course, Era course by Odersky. And I was wondering how that fed back into some of that C++ you were doing, as well as understanding where some of that stuff may fit in. Because you hear some of the high-performance talk about functional programmers saying, well, we don't necessarily like some of these features because you have closures, so you can't quite control all your memory and you can get quote-unquote memory leaks because this thing is closed over. Or even if we do manage to close it, we now remove that reference that's now in a closure. And so I was wondering, based off that functional programming in Scala, how you took it back or could not take it back to the C++ that you do today or you were doing back then. They're not the same thing. They're not really applicable. Certain concepts may be applicable, but I don't know. It's a very different approach. And I guess that's what I'm wondering is seeing that lambdas are getting introduced and map and filter and some of these other functional constructs and to be able the ability because you have lambdas to now take higher order functions in how that translates back into the world of C++ if you're looking at the higher performance computing side versus just writing something because C++ is the de facto language. Don't think you'd be writing the same way in both. I mean, for sure you won't try to solve the same problems in both languages. But it's like you were mentioning, there are certain costs which are more apparent in C++ because you don't have a garbage collector. So maybe if you're writing the same sort of map filter chain, maybe it'll be more expensive upfront than in a language with a garbage collector, but then maybe it'll be more predictable or more... When you're writing C++, you're always keeping in mind where are my allocations taking place? Do I need to copy this? Can I take a reference to it? And so you're trying to always to minimize the number of allocations. This this changes your style a bit. And also, even if you're dealing with higher order functions or with lambdas, many things are not as ergonomic as in a purely functional language or in a true functional language. Creating lambdas, transforming them, passing them around, I think this is much nicer in a functional language, in a managed language than in C++. I mean, I don't know, for me, just if you have lambdas and map and filter, that doesn't make a 
functional programming language. Those are some say functional concepts, but it's not enough. And that's where I was getting at was, as you said, the C++ standards now make it even more multi-paradigm. And while it may not be first-class functional, I didn't know how much of that stuff was even available to be used in the world of high-performance computing. As you said, that sometimes once you start to optimize for performance, your code doesn't even recognize what it started as before you had to go in and optimize for certain tweaks. So I wasn't sure where that was falling in, in the high-performance realm. Ironically, in the C++ template language, which is kind of like an embedded language inside C++, there you're actually dealing with a purely functional language that is only operating at the, let's say, at the type level. And I think it's one of the most, the ugliest or less ergonomic functional languages, but it is a purely functional language because you get to describe all sorts of these relationships, you can, you can do all sorts of computations at compile time in this language to implement. I think it's actually one of the most powerful uh, mechanisms for doing computations at compile time. But it's a bit ugly and difficult to understand and, and noisy, but it is a purely functional language. Okay, and it's been a while since I've done any C or even C++. And when I was doing it, it was that weird balance of that hybrid of probably some C-style programming with C++ features. And just even now, it's if I play with some free time trying to understand some of these Arduino kits, sometimes you're digging into a C++, but still writing it in a C-style, which is not high-performance functionality, and was wondering what that world is looking like. But given that foundation, you've also started working on this CERN VM file system. As you go through that, what are you using to create this distributed file system that you're using? You mentioned a lot of C++, but it sounds like a lot of the tenets that Erlang has. You kind of cite Erlang ideas in your talk objectives at CodeMesh. What were some of those things that, I guess, give a description of what that CERN VM file system is and how you found taking some of these lessons and working on a distributed system. So let me just give you a very quick overview of the system. And so this is a system that is actually running in production at the CERN for quite a few years. So I did not start it. I started working on it last year. So it's a C++ code base that implements one of these file system in user space modules. Maybe you're familiar with Fuse. So this is a facility on Linux that allows you to implement various file systems, but they're running as a user space process. So things like expose a, an SSH mount point as local file systems. So you can do all sorts of things. And CERN VM file system is basically allows you to view remote repositories of software locally. And the key points to it are that all the transfer is done in a lazy manner. So when you mount these repositories, you instantly see all the contents. So like the metadata, the number of files, their size, their permissions, but actually transferring the contents of all these files is done on demand when you're actually accessing them. So this is used because at the CERN you have, I think it's on the order of a couple of terabytes of software 
per day, new software per day. So in all the different projects at the CERN. And this software has to make its way to a global grid of computers that will be running simulation analysis code using this changing software. So this on-demand distribution system is what was developed at the CERN to solve this problem. And my work on it, which started last year, was trying to improve the publication scalability because so the way things are done is it's kind of like a publish-subscribe pattern. You're publishing new files into these repositories in a single place on a single machine. And then this thing is propagated to all the read-only clients that are connected to the repository. And it's on this publication side that we said, oh, let's try to use Erlang for this because we needed a publication system that was like more re- resilient, more scalable. So it was an experiment to see if the benefits of the Erlang programming language and ecosystem can serve us to more easily develop this side. So I want to get into what you found if you've picked up Erlang as the experiment to see about this. But before we get there, you mentioned terabytes of new software every day. Yeah. I I would imagine terabytes of new data every day, but if terabytes of new software is coming out every day, is I'm 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 kind of stumped on that. Can you kind of give an overview of what that means to even no, produce it's, terabytes it's, of so the continuous integration systems of the CERN. So the CERN, by the CERN, I mean the CERN and all the partner universities and, and research institutes which are working on the physics at the same time is around one terabyte per day. But this is all the nightly builds and all the iterations on the, on the software. Not all of this is kept. Production releases are kept around and remain available for a longer time. But this is, this is basically what's coming out of the continuous integration systems of the CERN. It's a lot, but in many cases, you have these systems which will actually bootstrap from compiling a specific version of the compiler and tool chain and everything. So it, it's a lot of software coming out. And the idea is that also for this reason, we developed CERN VMFS because it has one of these, it's based on content addressed storage. So files, when they are added to the repositories, they are cut up into multiple chunks. And then these chunks are saved in a file name that represents the hash of its content. So you have built-in deduplication of your repository contents. And this actually allows you to reduce this number to a more manageable one. Okay. And that helps explain that size because I was thinking about CERN and not necessarily all of the partnerships in universities, but just putting out and being able to produce that much output not thinking about necessarily the artifacts and all the special build instructions to run on specialized hardware, I would assume. But I was just thinking about the churn of creating that much output of software seems like a lot of teams working on it. So that's where I was getting. Well, there's a lot of teams and there's also a lot of domains because so at the CERN as an organization supplies like the infrastructure groups and some centralized activities. But then you have four large physics experiments, which are operating on the Large Hadron Collider. And these are independent entities with their own researchers, which may be distributed at various universities. And they are actually doing the physics. So each one of these experiments has an online 
part and an offline part, let's say. So in the online, you have the researchers, which are researchers and engineers and technicians who are dealing with data acquisition. So here you have, like you said, you have more specialized hardware. You can have FPGAs. You can have all sorts of crazy things just to help you acquire the vast amount of data that is coming in from the accelerator. And on the other side, on the offline part, once this data has been reduced and stored, you have all the analysis and simulations that are done on it. So, so for the data side, we are recording about five petabytes of data per year. And this is including all the derived data sets. So on the data side, it's, this is the number we are dealing with. And I was imagining something in the petabytes of data. Just first thought was terabytes of projects coming out per day and not realizing things like nightly builds and all the artifacts there at first was, that's got to be a, either a lot of churn or a, a huge number of people to be able to produce that amount of software every day when I was not considering the whole build chain and artifacts of everything else. And so you start to look at Erlang a little bit for this distributed system. How did that get put on the team's radar? And how did you find picking that up coming from your C++ high-performance background and the exposure that you had through functional programming, through the Coursera course, and anything else you were doing on the side? So at the beginning of my project, we were about to transform, let's say, the server-side part of this file system from a more, let's say, stateless set of components, so basically command-line tools that you are running on these publication machines and you were logging in and running these commands to a more, let's say, traditional server application that is always running and you interact with the server application through a, a web API. And for this, we considered Erlang also because me and my teammate, we were both familiar with Erlang. So we didn't want to start doing it in C++. And we said, right, if we do it in Erlang, it's going to be a quicker way there because we can benefit from all the system frameworks that come with Erlang. And we knew that we intended to use it for the control layer. So basically, it's access control and managing multiple connections from different clients. But the data processing that is involved is still done in a C++ part. So for that, we thought it was suitable. And I think we are very happy with it right now. It met its purpose, and I think we would use it in further roles too. What really struck us was how easy it is to implement your code with this let it crash approach. So in Erlang, the interesting thing is that instead of writing your, let's say, business logic and error handling code in the same place, in the same file, you will decouple these two things. So in your main part of your code, you will deal with your business logic. And if something doesn't fit or something unpredictable happens, you allow your code to crash. And in parallel to this, you have a hierarchy of processes whose sole role is overseeing, supervising your main business logic processes and detecting if they crash and taking appropriate measures if this happens. So in practice, separating these two things into independent code paths really, really makes 
writing some sort of server application very simple. And then you mentioned you're doing orchestration around all this. And you said you're kind of replacing the command line programs with a web interface. Is this allowing people to go and update and also orchestrate the pushing of the updates out to the different servers, different subsystems, and letting them know that, hey, there's changes here. Go refresh the metadata and maybe pull a new file when it's time to pull a new file. Or is this orchestration of the websites and permissions of what people can see? What are the problems that you're using the Erlang or as the orchestrator to solve? So there are like two main things that can be solved with this and what we set out to do. So in the previous way of publishing, you had a single machine that could actually write into these repositories. So this was kind of a bottleneck for certain like very extreme cases. So with this sort of repository gateway, as we call it, we can actually scale out and add as many publication machines per repositories as we need. So if in the future, like the number of files that need to be written into the repositories goes up, you can accommodate this with multiple writers. So this is one thing. And additionally, having this flexibility of adding as many writers to a repository as needed could also allow us to use this file system for new use cases where you could have let's say, individual users able to publish into a specific part of a shared repository, so make things closer to a traditional read-write file system where this makes sense. So two problems that we wanted to solve were scalability and performance of writing and also more flexibility in the architecture. And by improving these writes, is this... You're now having multiple machines with the same file system and you're essentially duplicating or partitioning off which parts of the file system that is so the writers can be paralyzed. So part of the part that's being written to might be on one machine and another part gets put on a different actual machine and different or at least different hard drive set. So you're taking advantage of the parallelism. Yeah, precisely. So we are lucky in some ways, that this publication workload, so you can split it into an embarrassingly parallel part, which is actually taking the files and processing them, so processing individual files, so they have to be compressed and hashed. So this thing you can do concurrently without any synchronization. So this you can easily split on how many machines you need. And then the critical section... The serial part of this publication is actually rebuilding the metadata catalogs in each repository at the end of a publication phase. And luckily, this represents a small part of the entire publication process. So even though it's serial, it doesn't penalize the parallelism that much. I can see where that goes. I wasn't sure if it was, as you described, a different way or something along the lines of the Hadoop file system where different segments of the files go out or different repositories now each get their own server. So you're paralyzing across repositories and each one gets put somewhere that the Erlang orchestration system knows and then can pass along a reference to. And I could see it playing in a bunch of different ways. So that was why I was kind of curious of how that orchestration was working. But getting a view of that makes sense 
So precisely how this works, the repository still will be served from a central machine, which is it's actually a stock HTTP server. It's, it's usually Apache or Nginx. And in front of this machine, you are now running this Erlang gateway that is being used by multiple publication machines. And these machines each send their own payloads to the gateway. And the role of the gateway is first giving out locks, leases to the individual publication machines such that they do not try to modify the same parts of the repository at the same time. And then it also receives these payloads and unpacks them into the repository. So it does these two, the Erlang application does these two jobs. And then you've said it's been working well so far. What were some of the takeaways that you've learned from doing this project so far that Erlang was a fit with? You mentioned that the processing of the files and compressing and metadata analysis before you actually write that metadata was embarrassing parallel, so it made sense. What were some of the other key takeaways that you learned from working on this project? So one of the reasons also why we chose Erlang was that we knew that it has a good integration story with C++ because we had a large C++ code base that we wanted to reuse as much as possible. So actually, as I mentioned, this work of compression, hashing, and some other specific operations, they are still implemented as C++ worker processes that are managed by the Erlang application. So this was great. Now, like key takeaways. So for me, at least, it was a, a big difference working with a dynamically typed language coming from C++. So I know that for certain functional programmers, the type system of C++ is comparatively weak to, say, Pascal or something like this. But still, you have the same workflow as in a statically typed language. So going from this to dynamic Erlang was, was a bit weird. So you really have to write more tests such that if you're refactoring your code, you don't introduce some mistakes and you don't lose track of things. You have to use things like Dialyzer. So Dialyzer is a tool that comes with the Erlang language, allows you to write type annotations for your functions. And then these annotations are statically checked by the dialyzer tool. And it can tell you that basically your program makes sense or not. It's correct or not from the type point of view. But these are things that you have to manually write and keep up to date. But definitely they are mandatory if you're working with a large enough Erlang application. Then OTP, which is the application framework for Erlang, is really impressive. It, it's a series of components, like reusable components for developing this sort of server application that Erlang is suited for. So this made developing the application very, very quick. And then going back to the dynamic nature of the language, I think the fact that you write programs in a functional way, so Erlang is... is I think you can see it as completely functional. So you, you only express your code as a composition of functions. The fact that you have this and all values are immutable actually makes debugging much nicer than in a dynamic language where everything is mutable everywhere. So whenever I ran into a problem, it was much easier to debug it due to the immutability than in other, in other languages. And it's always interesting to hear those takeaways from people and 
I've heard a, a number of other Erlang people, especially on this podcast, come out and say, absolutely use Dialyzer. If you're not using Dialyzer, you're putting mistakes into your system that you don't even realize. And so to hear you also come out and say that gives other reinforcement from the statically typed and working on a system of this, I guess, complexity that you've described just reinforces the need for things like Dialyzer and Erlang. Well, the Erlang part that we currently developed, not that complex. So the bulk of our system is still C++, but still, I think Dialyzer is a must. If you're starting a new Erlang project, you should just do it from the start because it will pay off in the long run. And also you have all the tools for writing integration tests, for writing all the, you have QuickCheck, which is very nice too. So QuickCheck is this property testing random, uh, instead of uh, writing tests, like in a point-wise manner where you say like, for this input data, I should get this result. And you write these test cases by hand. You instead specify properties for your code and for any input of this form, this property should hold. And then it's this quick check library that will actually generate test cases for you and try to invalidate your properties. And, and then if these uh, properties are invalidated, it tries to come up with a minimal input value that invalidates these properties. So this is a, a very nice way of, of approaching testing. And, and I think quick check originated with Haskell if I'm not mistaken. And then this creator also ported it to Erlang. And on Erlang, it's actually a commercial product. John Hughes wrote it. And I think the, the Erlang uh, port is used a lot in the automotive industry, if I'm not mistaken. But I think it's one of the most ported test libraries out there because I think you have a version in a new language. We're actually using it also on the C++ side. I mean, it's really that good. And I'd seen some stuff about it being in C++ for Quivic as well on their site. So the fact that you're actually taking advantage of it on both sides sounds interesting. Well, on the C++ side, we're not using the Quivic one. We're using this port rapid check, which is written by, it's an engineer from Spotify who wrote it, if I'm not mistaken. So it's not using the Erlang version, but... Now that you say that, it makes sense that there's probably half a dozen different attempts at creating a quick check for any given language. Yeah, it's like a write-up passage. So we've been going for a while. We still got a little bit of time. Is there anything we haven't covered we'd be remiss to cover before we continue on? I think we we did a good tour of CERN VM and CERN VM file system. I think it's safe to move on. So I do want to touch on real quick because we talked about it in the pre-show and I haven't really had many people on who've played with it, but you talked about Rust. Can you give an overview of what you've played with, with Rust for a little bit and how you found that fitting in between the functional side and the C++ where it's taking those lessons from each and kind of blending them? How have you found that when you've been playing with it so far? So Rust, I've only... I haven't used it for any work-related project. I'd like to. I think it's it's ready. But for me, my interest in Rust stems from my frustration with C++. So C++ is powerful. It lets you do anything. But it's not safe. 
it's definitely not safe. It's extremely easy to introduce all sorts of memory errors or data races, or there is very little help from the compiler here. So this is like for me the most powerful thing that Rust offers. And for the type of software where it's easy to introduce memory errors or race conditions, the fact that the compiler can eliminate a whole class of errors is where the value comes. And then at the same time, it's a language that from a performance point of view does not compromise anything with respect to C++. So you're working at a similar level. The allocation uh, or like the dynamic memory management story is similar to C++. You have this sort of RAII. So I think this is the name of the idiom, like resource allocation is initialization, where you have constructors for your data and then your data is destructed upon leaving scope. These two things are the same in C++ and in Rust. But at the same time, it feels like you're writing in a higher level language. So you have things like algebraic data types. You have so-called enums, which are kind of like the variant types from other functional languages. And of course, you have these functional constructs, closures, you have higher order functions. So the mix of these two things is really, really promising. And I think Rust is also situated in a unique position also when it comes to the ergonomic of these things because it actually feels, after the initial learning curve, it, it actually feels very productive already. And Rust is interesting, and I haven't needed to do any work that's that reliant on the performance to need to dig down into Rust, as I mentioned in the pre-show, but wanted to at least give a tease of some of that and hear a little bit about it because I knew there was... Some of the people involved in the Rust project had Haskell experience. And when you mentioned the algebraic data types, if you've done Erlang, you've done high performance C++, and you're playing with Rust, was wanting to give that picture of how you've found it for anybody who might be wanting to go and say, well, I like some of these functional ideas. They're not going to buy maybe Haskell's fast enough, maybe OCaml's fast enough if we compile it down. But we're not going to get that sold. But we might be able to get Rust sold. So I was trying to get a get a little high-level pitch of how you've been finding Rust stepping between both the functional side with Erlang and the high-performance C++ side. Well, you know, if you're coming from the sort of projects that I was doing, uh, things like Haskell, maybe they're not the best option. Like, for instance, if you're writing some sort of systems code, like a file system, you really need to be able to do forking new processes at various points. So actually having very little runtime overheads or like not having a big runtime library is an advantage. Because for instance, like if, 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 if your language runtime actually is managing some threads in the background that you don't have direct control over, it may mean that you cannot do fork because then you're leaving your new process in a very strange state. So the fact that Rust does not have a very large runtime is definitely an advantage. It makes it usable in a system setting. So I think if you're developing an application, like a sort of server application or server, there you have more flexibility. You can use Haskell, you can use Erlang, you can export things. You have maybe a different performance profile that you're looking at. But if you're really 
developing some sort of system process, you have different requirements. And the fact that you can use a language that feels like a higher level language, so it feels closer to writing uh, something like Haskell or OCaml than writing C++, it's incredible, actually. And again, that's the rundown I wanted to get because I've heard it pitched. And as I said, without that experience and needing to go to that level, I'd love to get someone on to talk some more Rust and understand the functional implications of it. But just to know that it is looking like a reasonable and, in fact, practical option when you're needing to dig down into the process intensive, computation intensive with a lightweight runtime that would probably be 99% of the time you're picking a C or C++ if you're able to take advantage of the C++ libraries. Yeah, also this, it's trivial to use an existing C library in Rust code and go the other direction. Actually, it's, it's very simple to implement parts of your system in Rust and wrap it up in a C interface. So expose it as a C library and link it in an existing C or C++ code. And actually having interoperability in both these directions, I think, again, it's unique because I, I think other programming languages allow you to easily link in C code, but how easy it is to actually expose your own code as a C library, this, this doesn't happen so often. So I think these are not coincidences. The designers of Rust definitely had these goals in mind, I guess. Well, that sounds like a great overview and definitely is piquing my interest of Rust a little bit more and understanding where it might fit in in the language tool sets. So thanks for that. Since we're coming up at the end of our time, we mentioned your code mesh talk. We'll get links to that in the show notes and get links to the talk page and potentially the video if it comes out soon enough. Are there any other appearances at conferences you're going to be either presenting at or attending that's on your radar at this point? Not for the moment. So the CodeMesh was the last conference for this year, and I still haven't picked or targeted anything for next year. I think there's going to be some development work in the meantime, and then maybe at some point in 2018, it's time again to go to some conferences, but there's nothing lined up for the moment. We mentioned your talk at CodeMesh. Is there any other places that, if people are curious about some of this CERN VM file system project, or what it is, or just to understand better, that you would point people to? Oh, of course. So this file system and the entire project is open source. So I think the vast majority of the software at the CERN is open source, and usually is also licensed in a very with a very permissive license. So CERN VMFS is BSD licensed it's available on github you can clone it you can play around with it you can you can use it for your own uh, <laughs> for your own purposes and if you actually want to know more i mentioned earlier that it's the 10th anniversary of the project that is coming up so in january next year at the end of january there's going to be a workshop at the cern so users and developers of this system will give talks and share impressions. So this workshop is open to anybody who's interested. So if anybody wants to learn more and uh, see what we're doing, they are more than welcome to join us at this workshop. 
this is more like conference related or sounds interesting and sounds like it'd be an interesting to at least see what's going on with some of CERN a little bit more because you hear about some of these projects yeah, and we're trying to get together so like people from the project itself users of the project and also people from industry who are either collaborating or, or doing similar things so i think that there'll be some people from red hat possibly from microsoft from docker to share ideas and compare nodes and compare approaches because in many cases similar problems have been tackled in different ways so i think it'll be an interesting event plus it gives you the chance to do a quick visit of the cern everybody's welcome and i'll make sure i get some links to that in the show notes as well for anybody who's able to go or interested in checking it out so where can people find you online and follow along with what you work is there best places to keep up to date with what's going on just online with you? I'm Radu Popes on GitHub, and that's where my day-to-day work is uh, showing up. I am at Radu Popescu on Twitter, and I also have a website that is terribly out of date, but you, you can find some information about my projects and things on radupopescu.net. I think that's the, the extent of my online presence. Okay, and I'll get those links in the show notes for people to come back and find you and at least follow along and see if there's any other announcements that you're coming up with or just any other insights that you might be sharing online. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Radu, for taking your time to join me today. It was great talking with you and seeing a little bit about high-performance computing and where functional programming may or may not fit in how you're using Erlang for this distributed file system, and then, as I said, getting that little overview of Rust. So it was a great talking with you, and thanks for taking your time to join me today. Thank you, Stephen. It was my pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.